And I said, don't listen to Carl. He says 100 miles isn't that far. And he sticks his head out from behind his truck. He's like cooking dinner or something off his tailgate. And he goes, he goes, he goes, I never said it was easy. <laughs> Tina Koto Katoa, Ko Matt Raymond Tene, Ko Eugene Bingham Tene, Ko Ra Jeff Browning, Ko Dirtchurch Radio Mato, Na Korero Ngahu, Menga Kaio Ngahu. Matt, what are you doing? I'm um writing songs. About what? We're trying to do a podcast. My feelings. Feelings about what? Well, I'm thinking about, you know, I've always wanted to do a concept album. No, I didn't know. No, I thought we were doing a podcast. Well, I'm I'm a polymath and I've always wanted to do... Um, what? Anyway, sorry, carry on. A Sort of a, a chivalry metal sort of fantasy concept, concept album about, uh, you know, the, the, the difference of three and... I'm finding, and I was, I was looking on the Ultra website, and, and they talk about the difference of three as well. They've got to you, haven't they? They have. They've um, got to you. They've really got to you. And the difference of three, you know, their foot-shaped toe box, mm. their specific fit, fit for her. Um, that fit which for is her technology. Fit for her technology, mm. and, and that cushion zero drop. I mean, my, 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 my difference of three or power of three would have been, you know, three wizards, warlocks maybe. But Apparently they thought about that, but since we exposed the whole thing they dropped that idea mm. yeah so difficult. so how's this going to work with the podcast well, i need to talk to you about that but um, are you going off books are you dumping me well uh, it's going to be a, a we're going to transition to it while i'm you know saving up money for an electric guitar i mean i've only got this ukulele at the moment it's it's a beautiful ukulele though yeah it is yeah yeah okay maybe you could put it down and we could just like carry on the podcast but if you do want to talk about the fit for her technology, the cushioned zero, zero drop. drop. Yep. Uh, well, the foot shaped toe box. Yeah, we could yeah. do that later. We could, we yeah. could, we could. So, but yeah. I mean, it is you know that's the ultra way, and it is the ultra, ultra way. Yeah. yeah, for sponsoring this podcast proudly, and we're proud to have you on board. And thank you. Thanks, Ultra. Dirt Radio. Here we are. Kia ora, everyone. Show number ten. Kia ora, everyone. Kia. Number ten. Number ten. I guess that means we made it. It looks like we made it. Yeah, absolutely. Double figures. That's right. <laughs> Who would have thought? I, I know. I know. It seems like it's come around pretty quickly. It certainly has. And it's been fun. It's been so much fun. Mm. And what a banger of an episode we have for you today. Um, I was, when you when you suggested getting this guy, Jeff Browning, yeah. Bronco Billy, I was like, yeah, whatever. He's never going to come on little old Dirt Church Radio. No. But he was up for it. Very up for it, and what an amazing conversation we had with him! And yeah. I'm so excited to get to that. Yeah. Um, he just quickly for in case you don't know, he won Hard Rock this year in quite controversial circumstances, which he talks about yeah. really well and quite openly. Yep. Um, but he's kind of the he is out there proving that us oldies can keep doing it. <laughs> yeah, he? exactly. Also, he was being top. He's been top five or below the last three years at Western States. Yeah. And today, I've just looked on his Instagram, was the Run Rabbit Run, Run Rabbit Run in Steamboat Springs, Colorado. 
And he says this, one other thing, one thing hundred milers have taught me, it ain't over till it's over. If you feel horrible and contemplate quitting, you may just need to drink two bottles from a creek out of thirst and desperation, walk a bit, then chug more at the next aid station, and a few miles later, voila, you're back. 17th at 23 miles, third at the finish. Wow. Crushing it. Yeah. Uh, but it's never ambush, crushed the cargo though. Exactly. I was going to about to say ambush marketing from those crushed cargo guys on our Facebook page. Man, they're they're out of control. Hey, just um, quickly from last week's show in which we interviewed Mel Law, we just need to clarify something. He talked about Out There April, uh, which sounds like a fantastic initiative, Um, and he talked about it in the context of it was going to happen next year. April 2019. Yeah. Mel messaged us and just said, we're postponing Out There April for a year and now looking to start in April 2020, not April 19. Tough call, but the right one. So good on you, Mel. Thanks yep. for letting us know. And uh, the reasons behind that postponement are brilliant. Yeah, it's, it's not brilliant, sorry. It's the right reason for doing it. Yep. And uh, we're totally behind that whole concept and looking forward to it in April 2020. Absolutely. And you should, if you haven't heard our conversation with Malcolm Law, Dirt Church Radio Episode 9, go check it out. It's it's a great it's a great talk. Yeah. So stuff you should know. Well, yeah. I guess first off, uh, the top of the show, we did an introduction, our mihi in Te Reo Māori, and we're coming to you on the last day of Te Wiki o Te Reo Māori, or Māori Language Week, and Māori, Te Reo, is one of the three official languages of New Zealand, those being Te Reo, uh, English, and New Zealand Sign Language, and since we're a podcast sign language, it doesn't really work. I can't order a long black. You can do. Yep, I, I can I say. That. I can say hello. My name is Nurse Matt in sign language. How are you? But it doesn't really translate to the no. oral medium. So, yeah. yeah. But let me support it. Moving on from that, and and in tandem from that, stuff you should know. Sean Collins, friend of the show and original kind of germinating inspiration for the show, uh, him behind Lactic Turkey events and the Hillary Skyrun has brought together a new trail run series called Wild Auckland in uh, partnership with Bivouac Outdoors. Um, and we've got a press release from him. It says, explore the city of trails with a new trail run walk series from Lactic Turkey. With the closure of the Waitakere Ranges, some Hanua trails and more trails every week due to Cody dieback management, many Aucklanders are hungry to get back into our beloved bush, keep in shape, and also to help our mental well-being. Lactic Turkey have been joined by Bivouac Outdoors and the Auckland Council to deliver a brand new series of trail runs and walks that do just that. Introducing Aucklanders to little explored trails all over our city that sure delight those in need of an escape. As the weather warms, there's one event per month for the next four months all around different lesser known Auckland parks and trails. This means everyone has the opportunity to get out there with each event delivering a wide range of off-road distances for the kids and novice runners right up to something to challenge the most experienced trail runners out there. Competitors can sign up for the whole series or just sign up for an individual event. So I'm super excited about this. Yeah. And there, so it's September, October, November, and December mm. at Tapapakanga in South Auckland, Tafranui in Northeast Auckland, which is going to be fantastic. I got married there. Did you? Yeah. Oh, I got married at the Riverhead Hall just up the road. Mm, yeah, just down the road. Yeah. Te Pūriri in Northwest Auckland and Murawai in West Auckland. And uh, yeah, I'm super excited about this. And, and we've seen, I guess, running out at Riverhead which is where we run, uh, it's gotten a lot busier now that the Waitakere Ranges are closed. There's a what's called a rahui or a, a, a ban that was put on by the mana whenua of the area or the indigenous people of the area to combat 
Cody dieback. Yeah. And so that came in place uh, at the beginning of last summer. And just to explain a bit of context in case you're not you're listening from overseas or so on, uh, the the disease has affected uh, lots of bush, particularly in the North Island, Upper North Island. Yep. Well, coyote only grow in the Upper North Island. Um, and it's meant that lots of trails that we used to train on are no longer accessible. Initially, it was just a rahui, so it was just, uh, you know, it wasn't a formal ban, as it were, but we as a group all decided, you know, to really be careful mm. about respecting the rahui yep. and not going into those onto those trails. As hard as that was in training, you know, it's so tempting just to go out there. But we all made a decision, didn't we, to respect mm. the rahui, and so we totally trashed the trails at Riverhead instead all summer long, uh, last summer. Now there's a more formal ban <coughs> in place. Uh, there's big gates up and yeah, the, from the council. Yeah, the council has sort of blocked off access to the trails, and it's all because of Cody dieback. And if you don't know what a Cody tree is, I mean, I and you're from overseas, I'd encourage you to Google it. It's sort of it's not our, although it's not our national uh, tree. That would be the silver fern. It is a, a mighty, mighty. Uh, so impressive to see forest giant and these trees are you know some of them are thousands of years old and they are dying off um and the disease is spread by by soil so it's commonly people walking on the root systems of the trees or uh, uh spread by wild animals such as pigs and it can only take like a pinhead of soil um to move enough spores to spread the disease and once you know, there's no known cure, and and so once the trees get infected, they're done, unfortunately. And uh, as I'm talking to you, I'm looking at some photos of of, of these kauri trees and, that have been affected by dieback, and it's it's quite heartbreaking, really. Oh, it's terrible. I, a couple of years ago, I did a I, in my my sort of real life. I'm yep. a journalist, uh, and did a story a few years ago for the 60 Minutes program about kauri dieback, and we went up and filmed in the Waipaw forest up north, and it was. It's terribly sad to mm. just see these giants all dying. Uh, so the the connection with Sean really is a very personal one, isn't it? He, he made personal. a huge call. He has a, a race called the Hillary, which runs through the Waitakere Ranges. Named for Edmund Hillary. Sir Edmund Hillary. Sir Edmund mm-hmm. Hillary. Who was Tenzing Norgay, was the yep. first people to reach the top of Mount Everest. That's right. Uh, so the Hillary Trail, the Hillary Race, was an epic sort of 80-something. 84. It seemed like about 4,000 kilometres, to be honest, <laughs> having run it a couple of times. Uh, but Sean organised a race through there and had to make the big call last year to call it off, mm. which I have an enormous amount of respect for Me Sean too. for doing Absolutely. that. Mm. Absolutely. And it's, so it's great that he's got this other event, series of events up now yep. to not only obviously gives us some runners, give runners some events to get into in Auckland, but also a way of showing other trails that we can run. That's right. And it's it's about, that. I guess there's that thing, isn't it, that the Waitakere Ranges, they're storied, they're grandiose, they're wonderful, but it's not the only place to run in Auckland. No. So um, it's fantastic that yeah. he's organised this series and... We just wanted to give a big shout out to absolutely, him and, and and also talk about it. what can you do to combat the spread of Cody dieback disease. Well, first up, respect the Rahui, respect the ban. Don't go into the bush. Don't be a dickhead. Don't be a dickhead. If you know, if you see, uh, if you are going into areas of bush and there are like up at Shakespeare Bay or other places, and there are Cody dieback stations for um, washing your feet, do that. Yep. Yeah, because it doesn't take long. It doesn't just take stop. long. Just 
clean your shoes. Yeah. Uh, spray the spray stuff. Yeah. It's magic. It is. It actually makes you go faster, so it's That's worth right. doing it. <laughs> and do that stuff. Don't be a dickhead. Don't ignore the signs. Don't ignore the gates. Don't yep. jump the fence. And it kind of speaks to a wider uh, kind of concept or way of thinking for trail runners, which most trail runners are respectful of, to be honest. We were talking about it when we met. Even yep. if you're not in Auckland and affected directly by or in the Coromandel and so on, or if, and affected by Cody Dieback directly, the same sort of mentality applies when you're running in bush anywhere. Don't be a dickhead and drop your rubbish. Yeah, don't. pack your stuff out. Leave yeah. only leave only footprints. Take only photos. Take I only thought- take only workout selfies and. Leave only footprints. Yeah, yeah. I was picking up, I picked up a bunch of gels the other day out at Riverhead and, and this was before the Xterra. So there was an Xterra race out uh, in Old Mother Riverhead the other day and that was cool. But before that, some people have been out dropping gels on the ground. Like, it, pick them up. Pick them up. Yeah. Put them in your pack. We have to come back with packs full of rubbish, don't we? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. yeah just do it. So there we go. Yeah, that's stuff you should know. Stuff you should know. Don't I'll, be a dickhead. Don't be hey, a dickhead. Um, greatest run ever. We encourage you every week to write into us yep. at dirtchurchradio at gmail.com and tell us your greatest run ever or use the social media hashtag greatest run ever. Yep. Tell us your greatest run ever, which is not necessarily your best race. It's not necessarily some magnificent mountain you climbed it could just be a run around the block something that really inspired you and made you think yeah that was cool yeah tell us about it and we've had some fantastic examples some amazing our, ones yep. in our episodes so a friend of the show chris hope who runs new zealand running calendar yep. which you should amazing get resource it's a fantastic resource sign up for the email every week i'm kind of on tuesday i'm hitting refresh to see it coming through yeah uh, or find him on facebook uh he put it out there his facebook followers saying that he'd noticed on Dirt Church Radio, this idea of greatest run ever. So he put it out there and got a couple of excellent responses. One from Meg Gordon, who nominated the Triple Peaks Hawks Bay. Uh, so she says, I did it to climb Mount Kahuranaki and to lose... Did I get that right? Matt? Yep, Kahuranaki. To, and to lose 30 kilos. Failed on both counts. The weather... <laughs> <laughs> Okay, sorry. The weather wiped out because the Tuki Tuki River couldn't be crossed, and I only lost eighteen kilos at that point. That sounds pretty amazing. Forty pounds. That is not a failure. No. But a day wogging for one older person got two older people into into the Hawke's Bay Trail Running Series into Iron Māori and heaps of other distance. Sorry, heaps of other events that have changed our lives. Heading for 60 and nearly 70, every step makes a difference. Fantastic. Fantastic. That is not a failure. No. Leslie Park, Old Ghost Road is pretty special. Only one way in and one way out. Incredible scenery. I need to get down there. Yeah, we do. Yeah. Yeah. Let's Uh, make it happen. Yeah. And Chris Hope himself said this, mine is my first ultra at Tarawira in 2012 and I did the 85 kilometers from Rotorua to Kaurau. I was really well trained for it, better than any event I'd done before and everything fell nicely into place on the day with one exception. I hit the wall pretty badly about 64 kilometers into it and I just wanted to curl up and go to sleep. Another runner passed by and gave me some cola, caffeine lollies um, and that got me going again. It was a truly magnificent day. The weather was fantastic and I finished strong and it was one of the best days of my life. As my greatest run, it would be very closely followed by Midnight Midwinter Madness 3, the same year which Mark Coltart wrote about in the Dirt Church Radio Podcast Episode 4. And you should check that one out too. It's you great. Do. Yeah. It was an epic event. So fantastic. Thanks, yeah. guys. Send and, us. And, and Chris Hope is a great runner and he, if you've ever had the... Um, Fortune or misfortune to run downhill with him, he goes like a cut cat. 
Are you shaking? No, no, I'm not you're shaking. Having flashbacks. No, no, I, I, you've, I, you've been, you've, you've seen them in action. I can roll downhill pretty quickly as you well. You can actually, yeah, and, that's um, true. I, I kind of constantly have to yell at you. Slow down. <laughs> but he's a great runner. He's, he, I've had many amazing runs with Chris. Yeah, yeah and yeah. he's good, good to chat to on the on the trials as well. So make sure you sign up for uh, NZ Running Calendar and send us your greatest run ever. Absolutely. Do that. So. Here we go. The main event. And speaking of someone who can roll downhill pretty quickly. Pretty fast. Pretty, yeah, pretty. <laughs> he, he does all right for an old fella. Um, Jeff Browning. I mean, I'm, I'm looking at his. Start. Yeah, well, I'm looking at his, his ultra highlights going back from 2005. And there's a lot of them. Yeah, we'd be here. We'd be here Christmas. forever. But let's just say in the last three years, the Western States 100, he has come in the top five. 2016, 2017, 2018. He also holds the uh, record for the Western States Hard Rock Double, which is the fastest combined time between both of them. Uh, he was first at the Bear 100 in 2017. He was first at Antelope Island this year. He was first at Hard Rock this year, and he was third at Run Rabbit Run in just today or yesterday, uh, depending on what time zone you're in. Jeff, uh, well, last is, week, depending yeah, on when you listen to the podcast, that's right. Well, several weeks ago, maybe, or, or even in the future. Uh, Jeff is an endurance coach, coach, ultra athlete, designer, husband, and father of three kids. He lives to run in wild places as well as fighting to protect them. Uh, he grew up in a, on a 700 acre farm in Missouri, and he says that no matter what the weather, he was always outside, always moving. Now, you might wonder as well why he has the name Go uh, Bronco Billy. He says in his early ultra days, a running buddy came up with a nickname due to his tendency to yell yee-haw and giddy up when his stoke was high on a running adventure. And having had a chat to um, Jeff, his stoke seems to always be high. So, so it, was, it was him yelling yee-haw and giddy up that yeah. got him the name Bronco Billy. What's Because I'm always having to yell slow down. <laughs> I don't know where that goes. Anyway, I'm glad that nickname hasn't yeah. stuck. <laughs> slow down. So... Um, Jeff is spo- sponsored by Ultra Running, Patagonia, Goo, um, Squirrels Nut Butter, Sunto, Rudy Project, Black Diamond, and Protec, and Trail Butter. Uh, and we are delighted that he uh, came on the show, and we're delighted to have had this talk with him. Radio. Okay, kia ora everyone. We, are, we have the amazing pleasure to be with Bronco Billy himself, Jeff Browning. Kia ora Jeff, how are you? Good, how are you? Very well, thank you. Hey, look, congratulations on uh, an amazing year of ultramarathon running. You've, thank, it's thank been you. huge for you, but you're not slowing down. You're a couple of, uh, a week or so out from the Run Rabbit Run. Yeah, I am. I take off on Tuesday, the race on Friday, so little, six days. And that's in Colorado, yeah? Yeah, Steamboat Springs, Colorado. How are you... How how's the body feeling? How have you recovered after a huge double? You know, Western States, fifth at Western States, and uh, a hard rock win. Um, I'm I'm good. I feel pretty good. I've had some really good mountain runs. You know, I I moved to Utah about a year ago, and I'm still exploring my new backyard. And so the mountains here, I I've done some great runs here. We had a Chrissy Mail, and I uh, had a camp at Colorado Running Ranch in Durango. So I spent another five days in the San Juan mountains again, where hard rock course is at altitude. And then I spent a three day block. It's in steamboat. Amanda Basham and I 
ran a training camp for Run Rabbit Run, just a two-day scout trip to allow anyone that wanted to show up. We had maybe eight or ten runners show up and just kind of scout some of the new sections of the course. They changed the course this year a little bit, more single track. Oh, um, there's some new mountain bike trails that they're incorporating that that basically got rid of a big four-wheel drive road section. So pretty stoked about having single track instead of road in the <laughs> in that nice. section. So yeah, so I like training's been great. I've been taking it pretty chill. I've been on my bike a little more too. Been taking pretty chill in between those bigger efforts. You know, I've had some strategic speed work here and there, but but you know, I've also put some volume on the bike. I do a lot of bike run bike workouts where I bike to the trailhead, run, and then bike home. Oh, that sounds perfect. What, what sort of distance are you are you biking? When you do um, that? you know, anywhere from two to five or six miles one way. So, you know, two of those. So, you know, anywhere from five to ten miles, you know, I'm I'm probably biking. Just to get the legs warmed up and, and moving. Yeah, and I live I live pretty close to uh, multiple trail access points. So uh, I I have a you know I have a bunch of bikes coming from a cycling background, but but I have an, my old '90s mountain bike. I turned into a oh it's evolved over the years. It's been a single speed. It's been a bunch of different things, but I turned it into a geared one by seven. So seven gears in the back and just a one 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 in the front and. <laughs> Um, I put a higher riser bar because the old aggro <laughs> uh, geometry makes you really bent over and it's more comfortable. I have flat pedals on it, and just a cable lock wrapped around the frame. And I just, I just literally just jump on it with my running clothes on and just cruise up the trail and lock it to a tree or something. And then, just, and I mean, who's going to steal a nineties old mountain bike, you know, it's, I mean, it's fully rigid, but it's perfect for a commuter. Cause I can get on the dirt a little bit because it's a 26, 26 or mountain bike. And, um, and I just cruise up there, jump off the bike. So I might be, you know, anywhere from 10 to 10 minutes to 30 minutes on the bike before I'm running. So it's a good little warm up. And then I, I run and then I, you know, and anybody out there that is a, you know, dabbles in cycling knows that it really feels good to do both when you're a runner. Absolutely. Yeah. So you said you came from a cycling background. How did you first start racing? Well, what piqued your interest uh, in terms of trail and ultramarathon racing? I, you know, I came, well, to be honest, I had a really, a, my good first good friend in Bend, Oregon, when I moved there in 2000, I was trying to get him into mountain biking and he was trying to get me into trail running and he had run some marathons and he'd run a 50 K trail race. And he said, Oh, you got to check these things out. There's hundred milers. And I was like, what? hundred milers. And, uh, you know, I'm like, how many days? And he's like, no man, like the, people do it in under 24 hours. And so I was pretty intrigued by that idea of running a hundred miles, just the concept of it. I thought it was like, sounded like sadistically cool. And, and so, you know, basically he, he basically won. I, I didn't really get him into mountain biking and he got me into trail running, but I really liked it. You know, I, I'd never even run a marathon at that point when I'd heard about, you know, Western States 100 and 2000. And, and so I was like, Oh, let's, he and I had like, put our heads together over beer (laughs) and uh he said we should run it and i was like okay and then we realized that we couldn't get in without a qualifying 50 miler at the time and going through a lottery the year before the race so you know we were so so you hadn't even run a marathon at that no i hadn't even run a half marathon i had run a five and a 10k road race you know just for fun i worked at a, a bike shop well a triathlon shop in college 
it was mainly a bike shop running store. I mean, it had a little corner of like some swim stuff, but we were mainly a specialty running store and a bike shop. And I was a mountain biker. So I was really into cycling, considered myself a cyclist. I didn't really see myself as a runner, but I still had always run. I'd run track in high school. I played sports, you know, and football, American football and, and, and run track and, and competed in that, you know, I ran one, my conference in the 800 meter when I was a, a senior in high school, but, but I never really considered myself a much a runner, but I always dabbled in running. So, you know, 20, 30 minute runs to stay fit, um, and try not to, you know, gain too much weight from drinking too much beer in college. And, and then kind of really got into cycling in college, kind of found it in 1993, bought my first yeah. mountain bike and started working at a bike shop. And, and I sold bikes and shoes, running shoes. And my, the owner of the shop had run Boston marathon 25 times. And so he got it in my head that I should run a marathon someday. And so I started dabbling in five and 10 K's outside of cycling just, just for fun. Cause I worked at a running stop shop. And so, you know, I, I'd always run, you know, I had a dog and I'd always run as an adult after I graduated from college. And I, you know, I, I always was running like 20, 30 minute runs with my dog three or four times a week. And then I would go bike for it for four days a week on single track and outside of my career job. And then, you know, I really, that's what really got me into kind of like, you know, my mm-hmm. friend said, well, you should try these trail races. And I said, well, I probably ought to run a half marathon and a marathon first. So I did that in 2000. I ran a half marathon, a marathon. And then the beginning of 01, I ran a 50K trail race. And then from there, I was hooked. You know, the simplicity of it, not having to deal with all the gear that you have to deal with with bikes, you know, making sure, you know, you got the right air pressure and make sure your chain's lubed and make sure your gears are shifting right and having all the tools on you in case you break down in the backcountry. You know, all those things and running was so simple that I liked that. And I'd been a backpacker and a climber. And so, I felt like it kind of took all those disciplines and meshed them together. Fantastic. And so that, that sort of, I mean, you, so you, you qualified for Western States where you got it on the lottery. How did that work? Yeah. Yeah. So like back in Oh one or Oh 2000, I see. So 2001, I ran two fifty K's and a 50 miler. So that August of 2001, I got my qualifier 50 miler. It's now a hundred K qualifier, but back then it was a 50 miler. Um, I got a 50 mile qualifier and then I entered the lottery in November of 2001 to get for the 2002 race. And I got in, it was back then the lottery was a 50% chance of getting in, you know, flip of a coin. Now it's what, like yeah. eight, it's like 7% or 6% yeah. chance or something. Or maybe even less. On yeah, the totally. It's, it's horrible. Yeah. We've got a, <laughs> so, we've got a friend who's been trying to get in for how long's Tom been trying to get in? Uh, four or five years. Yeah. Still waiting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It'll, it'll take forever and you have to consistently keep entering. So you keep building tickets. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, you can't miss your qualifiers and stuff like that. Same with hard yeah. rock. But so you, you got in on that, on that first flip of the coin as it were and, and ran with yeah, some totally. sites and, and, and what was that like? That was the hardest thing I'd ever done to that point in my life. Um, I, I wasn't, you know, that first time, the first hundred is always like, I always tell my athletes, I coach, if it's their first hundred, I like, you have to finish a hundred before you can race a hundred. You actually have to get it under your belt and just go there. And once you've gone there, then your body goes, Oh, we've done this. Okay. I understand. And you get it. You understand how hard it is. You understand, you know, mentally how hard it is. And I think, you know, that first one was just get it done. 
And, and then I was like, I was kind of hooked because I, I did okay. You know, back then I wasn't trying, I didn't come at ultra marathons to race them when I first got into it. I got into it just to like, as bucket list, like, Hey, I'm going to run a hundred miles and mark it off my list. You know, it'd be like, Hey, I'm going to go, you know, climb a 14 or, or whatever. I, it's, it was like one of those bucket list items that I thought one and done and would go on about my life biking and climbing. But in the process of all of running and training over like an 18 month window to get into Western States and run it and get to the start line, I got hooked on like the culture and the social aspect of it and the simplicity of it. And I just really, by the time I got done with that, I knew I was going to do another one. Yeah. I, I, I'm, if I could, because it would, I won't because it would destroy the sound, but I feel like clapping because for somebody like you, who's just a, a 100 mile beast and is obviously a master of that distance to hear you talking in such river, what's the word? Reverence. Yeah. With such reverence for the hundred mile is, is really, um, is really great because I think lots of people sort of approach the hundred mile or enter it just a, as a thing to do and, yeah. and don't really have that respect for it that you, you know, that whole idea of just the first one, just finish it. And we've just had that here. And there was a, there's a very well-known New Zealand race called the Tarawera Ultramarathon that just this year had its first, uh, offered its first hundred mile and a lot of athletes entered and a lot of very capable athletes who've run the hundred K distance multiple times entered. And there was a huge attrition rate not less to do with the weather, but I think it really knocked a lot of people around because they sort of approached it with this kind of quite laissez-faire attitude of, oh, the miler, I'll just crack it out. But so yeah, that extra 60, that extra 60 K on top of a hundred K hurts. Yeah. Carl Metzger has been lying to everyone saying a hundred miles isn't that far. Well, you (laughs) know what? I just, I just camped with Carl at steamboat a couple of weeks ago and he, he was, one of my athletes was camping with us. It was there for the training weekend. And, and I said, I said something around camp. We were chatting because it's this guy, my, my athletes, it's first hundred run rabbit run is. And I said, don't listen to Carl. He says a hundred miles. Isn't that far. <laughs> and he sticks his head out from behind his truck. He was like cooking dinner or something off his tailgate. And he goes, he goes, he goes, I never said it was easy. <laughs> it's not that far but it, it, he never said awesome. it was easy so i think that's a good addition to his quote in parentheses i never that's said it was addition. easy <laughs> so you've been i mean you've been running you've been racing 100 mile races now for gosh 2000 so nearly yep. nine, 18 yep. years next year as you get along as 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 you we're all getting older but as you get older do you find that you need to take more care of yourself or do you find that you're just getting sort of better adapted as you go to that distance? I do a better job of taking care of myself. I'm, you know, after 18 years of running ultra marathons, you learn how to, what your body can handle, what it can't. Um, and it adapts over the years. So it can handle a little more volume, you know, probably for a good decade, I was able to handle each year a little more volume and, and then it kind of plateaued. So the last eight or 10 years, I've, I've been pretty plateaued at like the same amount of volume per year. But I think you get one, you get really experienced at the distance, the more you've done it. And so it, the body knows you're going there and it's, very, it's a familiar distance and a familiar feeling. So I think there's some experience there um, and adaptation. But I also think, you know, as you age, you have to do the, 
I find personally, I have to do the, I have to do more little stuff. Like I, I have to get body work. I, I have to foam roll. I got to do have a stretching routine, a mobility routine. I got to do strength training. You know, I got to learn to listen and quickly. I think you get better as you have more experience. You know what's like, like when you're going. Oh, I should. I was going to run today. I was on my training plan, but I should probably get on the bike instead. You know, you learn to listen to your body better. And in terms of, you know, you talked about that that change process as as you've gone along. I mean, you're you're very uh, outspoken about your diet, as you know, coming from a low carb, high fat standpoint, and how you adapted to that. I'm really interested to know because what does your intake and does what you eat change throughout yes. the season? So like you're two weeks out from run rabbit run now, can you, and I don't mean to be intrusive, but like, what do you eat? Say two weeks out from competition, what are you eating on a day-to-day basis and how does that change from the off season? Uh, that's a good question. And I, and I, I would say that I eat very cyclically. So some, some days like in a big training block, you know, I, I eat, I stay away from grains and sugar in my everyday, everyday diet. Grains are inflammatory. It has anti-nutrients in them, like phytic acid, phytates, lectins, stuff like that. Um, so for your listeners out there, go l- look those things up right. and, and find out what they are and understand that what's in your food. And so, um, and sometimes prep, the way you prep food can get rid of some of those or minimize them. But understanding that there are anti-nutrients in grains and, and sugar knocks your immune system down. Um, knowing those two things, I, I avoid them in my everyday diet, but I do use simple sugars on race day and long runs. So that's kind of that, this, what we call, you know, you know, what Zach Bitter and I both kind of coined or, or what we vespapower.com is coined OFM, optimized fat metabolism. So that idea is that we eat kind of paleo primal blueprint, bulletproof diet, that kind of a diet. So it's basically a paleo style of eating that's our food list. So we're staying away from grains and sugar in our everyday diet, but we, we mirror our carb intake from those paleo primal sources according to volume and effort. So the bigger volume weeks or bigger days, I look at it on a daily basis that on a day where I'd say do strength and speed work or a long run, I'm probably going to have a bunch of servings of carb carbs that day, but in the form of say fruit, and tubers like sweet potatoes, red potatoes, gold potatoes, stuff like that. Um, and then on days where maybe a rest day, I might eat more ketogenic, where I might eat pretty low carb that day, where I might hit like, you know, 50 to 70 grams of carbohydrates a day. But on big training blocks, I might be hitting 150 to 250 grams of carbohydrates a day. So it totally, it totally ebbs and flows according to effort and volume. So then on the days when you're burning a lot of glycogen, like a speed work day and strength day, I'm going to replenish that glycogen quickly after that workout with a higher carb intake in the next three to six hours. But I I do a lot of training in a carb fasted state. So like I might eat all my carbs in a six to eight hour window most days, meaning I'll have food in the mornings, but that means I'm probably Mm -hmm. having eggs and, you know, like protein and fat in the mornings. And then I work out at lunch during the week for my maintenance runs, you know, where, you know, so those days, I probably haven't had carbs since the evening before. So I probably in on a 14 to 18 hour carb fast, but I'm still having calories. I'm just not having carbs. So, so you, you, you really get, it really keeps your fat metabolism honed. 
And then I use a ketogenic style of eating strategically. So like right now I'm in the taper. So starting last Monday through tomorrow is Sunday. That's seven days. I've gone keto. So I've been keto for seven. This is my sixth day of keto, meaning my, my, I've hit maybe 50 to 60 grams of carbohydrates right. a day. That's not much. Just for people who, who aren't familiar with, um, for listeners who aren't familiar with those terms and those numbers. So when you are in, in keto state, can you just explain exactly what that means and, and, and those numbers when you're talking about that low volume of? Sure. So a, a ketogenic diet, I think sometimes, you know, in, in certain, you know, I know in South Africa and, and stuff that uh, Tim Noakes is, they kind of coined it banting, uh, the banting diet. But, but, the keto diet is basically getting yourself um, in a ketogenic state, which means you know uh, getting a surge in blood ketones, which means fatty acids are getting converted into basically ketones, which the body sees kind of as glucose, but but it burns them like glucose. So it burns them, but it's it's a fatty acid instead of glucose molecule. Food wise, you're trying to stay to fifty around fifty. A, a typical ketogenic diet is fifty grams of carbs or less per day. Which basically, right. if you're going to stay at 50 grams or less, you're basically eating vegetables as your carbohydrates only. And so high fiber, leafy veg or, or some kind of vegetables. You can't get really sugary vegetables. That means no fruit, no, you know, potatoes, anything like that. Now, as an athlete who's training, then you can actually kind of cheat that and take your carbs up a little higher. So when I'm going keto, I do vegetables only. So that means vegetables at lunch and dinner. And then I'm probably going to have one serving of fruit that day at night before I go to bed because it helps sleep. So that extra little bit of carbs helps helps you sleep deeper. So maybe after dinner, I'll have like I'll cut up an apple and put and and dip it in, you know, an almond butter or uh, I might have a handful of berries in something I call a fat parfait where I take equal parts almond butter, equal parts coconut oil, put a little sweetener like stevia. So something that doesn't affect your blood sugar and then mix that up and then sprinkle berries and, and drizzle a little heavy whipping cream or, uh, uh, coconut milk and some cinnamon. Delicious. Wow. To, to all those listeners who are out there listening to this podcast while they're running, we're really sorry that you're <laughs> drooling right now. Yeah. So that's something, that's a great, I call that the fat parfait. And so, so just like basically you're trying to keep your carbs really low that day and you're eating. And the cool thing about the paleo primal style of eating is what we're basically trying to do is keep our insulin stable. You know, we, we're trying to keep our blood sugar from getting any kind of major spike. And to give you a good idea of what the body, the body's homeostasis is one teaspoon of glucose in the bloodstream. And so, you know, a little spoon, that's it. That's all it wants. It wants to stay there. So anytime you eat a heavy carb load, and the and the blood sugar spikes, then your pancreas has to kick out insulin to get your blood sugar back down. So, yeah. a good a good just rule, like just to give you an idea of what certain foods do, a whole wheat organic bagel is about eight to ten teaspoons of glucose to your bloodstream, and your body wants one. So, and anytime we have an insulin response, pancreas kicks out insulin to get blood sugar back down, then. It tells the body store fat in the cells, and and now you start to understand why we have an obesity epidemic, because everyone's eating way too many carbs a day. Because if you think about the average meal, especially an endurance athlete, we're having you know a bagel and toast in the morning, and then we're having 
you know, a scone mid morning with our coffee. And then we're having, you know, a sandwich with two pieces of bread and probably like a side of, you know, French fries or, uh, chips or pasta salad. And then, you know, a snack in the afternoon. And then in the evening we're having a bowl of pasta. You just threw like 50 or 60 teaspoons of glucose at your bloodstream and it wants one. Mm, right. Yeah. So understanding that, that at some point the body can't keep kicking out insulin to get your blood sugar down. So the insulin starts having issues and that's what we call insulin resistance. That means the insulin, the insulin isn't regulating at the right amounts to get your blood sugar le- normalized again, because you're just throwing too much glucose at the bloodstream all the time. And so mm. we don't really, a lot of people, if they're healthy, we don't see that change until we're in our forties or fifties. So, but we do. And that's one of the reasons that we see, you know, as you age, it's harder and harder to get to race weight. You know, you don't, you always, you're creeping up a little in weight, just a little more, you know, you're a couple pounds heavier than it used to be. And that's one of the reasons. And when I went to this diet, I dropped down to my high school, 18 year old weight. And when I was playing four sports a year and lifting weights and, and I could not get there eating a high carb diet, a typical endurance, high carb diet. And I was pretty good. It was whole foods, organic for 13 years of racing was, you know, but I, I, you know, I, I, I still ate some bread, but we didn't eat a lot of pasta, but I still ate rice and, you know, tons of potatoes. And, and so my carbs were pretty heavy every day. Anyway, does that, does that answer your question? Yeah, it does. And I mean, I, to give you some context, you know, I work in an emergency department and you see, you know, the effect of diet and, and, and we're preaching, I guess, to the choir here, we're seeing, you know, our audience, are used to running a high level of activity, a high level of, you know, movement and and and, and quote unquote fitness, and, and you see the pernicious effect of type two diabetes and type one diabetes and and insulin, you know, um, irregularities on the say the sedentary population, and it's killing people left, right, and center. It, I mean, I I can't talk to, you know, following a paleo diet. Everyone has their own path, I think, with nutrition, but. Certainly what you say makes sense in terms of that, the amount of sugar that we do consume. Mm. Well, and that's that's why I like the cyclical idea. And that's really what OFM is about. It's like Mm. cycling yourself in and out. So, you know, as a hunter gatherer background or hunter herder background, the way we used to be, you know, that's our really our DNA as humans. And so to understand that that's kind of our DNA we understand that we used to eat kind of seasonally. So there, we mm. would have eaten high carb for maybe two or three months out of the year when things were really ripe and in season in the late summer and early, early fall. But then we would have gone to more of like a ketogenic style of diet where our carbs are pretty low because there just weren't any carbs around. So, you know, we could gather a few things, but there wasn't a lot. So the point here is that our bodies are built to be, to, to, to be able to, uh, be flexible, metabolically flexible, and they like to be flexible. So it likes to go in and out of different states. It doesn't like to what be in one state only for a long period of time, or else it has issues. It's the same if you went ketogenic for, you know, you might feel good for a year or two, but if you kept your carbs at 50 grams or less every day for say 18 or 20 months or, you know, two or three years, you'd start having some issues because your body starts downregulating burning glucose. It starts mm. having some issues with, uh, thyroid regulation and that kind of stuff. So your bodies are really built to have this kind of cyclical eating pattern. And so that's how the OFM protocol that I'm talking about is, and what 
what I'm following, what Zach Bitter is following, like the, that, that eating pattern, we're doing it instead of like on a seasonal eating pattern of like a macro, looking at it from a macro perspective, we're looking at it from a micro perspective, like weekly. So, oh, you know, today I ran really hard. Okay, I'm going to eat some more carbs today. But tomorrow I have a rest day. So I'm going to eat low carb tomorrow. And so we cyclically take it in and out. And sometimes I do it. I use ketogenic as a tool, like I'm using this week, seven day window ketogenic, and I'll bring back carbs starting on Monday, um, back into my diet a little higher. So I'll bump that up to about hundred grams or plus a day, hundred to 150. Mm-hmm. And then I'll have top off all my glycogen by the time I hit race day on Friday. And I'll have all the pop of glucose, but I'll have all the fat burning capabilities too. Right. right, so there's a dual process going on there. To, uh, uh, you, you are really using it for what it's, I guess those gels exactly. or, whatever, or the goo, you're using it for what it's intended. It's, it's rocket fuel essentially, isn't it? Exactly, because it's a dual fuel source. Both fuel sources are prone, are, are honed and primed. Mm. It, you, it almost, you talked about you talked about infla- uh, inflammation and the effects of inflammation, and we've all had that post race kind of staggering down the stairs or struggling to stand up from <laughs> oh absolutely seats kind of thing. So have you have you noticed any effects uh, in that regard? That's with probably the biggest change I've seen in this diet. Okay, you got me. You got me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so. I mean, huge. That that one's like night and day. Now I've done. Oh, let's see. I think eleven. 11 ultras now 1100s i mean on on this diet um you know i'd done 2200s up until so i've done 10 sorry i did i did 2200s as a high carb athlete and i always was massively inflamed after the race like you know couldn't see my ankle bones couldn't see the bones or veins in my feet super swollen really sore knees could could barely you could barely walk the first like 12 hours after the race. And, and I just chalked that up to hundred milers are really hard on you. But when I changed this diet, I was freaking out the first race on it. I was not even inflamed that much. I mean, I had micro swelling, but I was like, I was texting photos of my ankles and my knees to my wife going, Oh my God, can you believe this? Like, <laughs> and she was like, Oh my God, like, this you look totally different and i didn't get that one week like normally i would kind of be brain hazy like for about a week after the race like uh just swollen in my face and puffy and and i don't get that anymore i just you know i'm tired but and fatigued but you know with good reason 100 miles a long way right but but it's it really i it's night and day and i have to say like zach bitter emailed me before my first hundred on this. And he said, get ready for the recovery. It's going to blow your mind. And I thought, well, well, he's kind of probably over promising here, you know? Yeah. But he was right. And I've had multiple athletes, coached athletes that have had the same experience, you know, that have long time hundred mile runners have, have, have a lot of ultras under their belt. And we're like, it's like night and day. And after they get that, especially if you're, you know, 50 or 60 years old and you go, Whoa, I used to have to wait two weeks before I can run. And now I can run on day four. Yeah. After a hundred, that's a huge change. Something's going on. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Hey, we get the sense that from from your coaching, from from your diet, and and just from your approach, that you're a real student of the sport. Absolutely. And being here in New Zealand, I, I I heard somewhere that you picked up Arthur Lydia's books early on, and of course he's a you know a, a guru. He's a legend. Things. Um, yeah, absolutely. He's one of my yeah. favorite, actually. Um, he was the first training book I ever 
got a hold of. I found it, it like at run a, to the top or the Lydiard way. Oh, the Lydiard oh, way, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, draws, yeah. So that was the first book. I got a hardback. I found it. My wife found it used somewhere, and I and uh, I it was my first couple years of ultras, and I started. I just you know devoured the book, and then I started looking into him, and I really got into him big time. And you know, and obviously, I'd always been a, a, a fan of Oregon running you yeah, know so yeah. like steve prefontaine and bill bowerman and bill bowerman you know ha- had really consulted and used the same philosophies from lydiard yeah, he, he came out to new zealand bowerman came out to new zealand and, and ran yeah. with, with lydiard yeah and he came back and was like hey yeah. he was the one who came back and said hey we he started jogging classes yeah at university of oregon because of yeah. lydiard's influence and and so i've always really been a big fan of his and uh I also have the book Healthy and one of the earlier books I read was Healthy and Intelligent Training, The Lydiard mm-hmm. Way by uh, Is that one of Gath Gilmore or Living Livingstones? Uh, okay, right, yep. So like I just I've always been a big fan of his and his approach, you know, with like a lot a lot of easy running, you know, you know, eighty five percent of your volume should be, you know, zone one, zone two under your aerobic ceiling, and then the rest is, you know, strategic hard stuff. Um, so I've always followed that. And I think that really helps with longevity as well. Yeah. I think that's something that people often misinterpret about Lydia is they sort of looking back with modern, in the modern, um, context, they look back and say, oh, Lydia was just sort of long, slow and, but he wasn't, he was into that periodization. He knew how to build a base and then to build upon, upon that. Is that something that you still sort of approach you sort of still sort of take? Yeah, absolutely. Constantly. That's how I coach my athletes. You know, I look at like overall volume, you know, maybe 10 to 20%, depending on their experience and background in running is, is it a quality and of their total volume. And then also understanding that Lydiard, if you really read Lydiard closely, he never said run really slow. Yeah. He, 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 he was up for like running extra outside of your prescribed training. He was up yeah. for like going and jogging really easy, right? Mm. Just for extra flush volume. It was just for mm. flushing and putting extra volume on your legs. But he he like zone one, right? Heart rate. Mm. But he would. But if, but if you look at his like easy training, what he called easy runs, they were not long slow runs. They were really at right below aerobic ceiling. So which mm. is pretty fast still, if you're. If mm. you built a base and you're fit, right? If you're coming off the yeah. couch, you should be in zone one for a while, zone one, zone two, right? But and shouldn't be doing any quality. But once you've built a base, a lot of those guys were running, you know, really, really, you know, easy the, in that first initial buildup phase. But then as they progressed, that that running economy caught up to them, and they were running some of their, you know, they're running some of their long runs really fast. You know, yeah, marath- we're talking almost marathon race pace. Yeah, some of those runs, uh, Sunday runs over the White Tarouas were, yeah. were legendary with Bill Bailey and and uh, you know the rest of them just sort of going hammer and tongs over the over the White Tarua. And we we live in Auckland, so we live where Arthur Lydia lived, and we run on those roads, and it's it's no joke. Like it, it, you think about these men doing like you know four minute thirty k's, yeah, just cruising for you know thirty miles or whatever it was, and then yeah. Yeah, and that's fast, right? So yeah, it's yeah. so fast. Flying. Yeah, and that's in that yeah. book, that book, early book I got of his. I actually did the conversions, you know, of like 
he he talks about he talks about that point specifically about some of the guys when they were fit what they were running those long runs at when they went by the time they were good and fit and and they were flying 345 to 4 minute a kilometer so yeah, yeah. that's hauling yeah uh, and it's yeah. not flat running either no no the right there's a decent right. amount of vert in that loop yeah and, and from yeah, what yeah, i understand absolutely. at least i've never absolutely. been on it there but is. it's famous yeah you should come out and run it i would <laughs> i would love to run it just to say i did it do you take that approach i mean you are known i guess increasingly and especially over the last couple of years as, as sort of the not to be cliche but the closer you know <laughs> not that it'll ever happen but i'd hate to be behind you in a race uh you know you've and got your race you, or in front of yeah I'd, I'd hate to be behind you that would happen but i'd hate <laughs> to be in front of you in a race because you, you do you seem to wind up around the the 100k mark hey the that film when you got the hard rock oh the double double it yeah but what i wanted to talk about this year at hard rock i mean we know what happened with xavier yeah but i wanted to and, and that's what it is but i wanted to talk about when you found out that he'd been disqualified <laughs> you were in quite a tussle for second third did your mindset change then yeah i mean okay so to back up about mile 75 i in the middle of the night i i thought i was off course i was on course but it's very minimally marked on purpose and and if i would have had my phone on me with the gps app i could have just popped it out and been like oh i'm on course and not it would take me you know 30 seconds to check but i didn't have my phone and so i i basically did what you're supposed to do and that's backtrack to the last flag which ended up being about 2 kilometers but enough because you're running slow and downhill at altitude and you're looking both ways in the dark, looking for flags, make sure you didn't miss something. And then you, when I got back to the flag, I was looking around, making sure I didn't see anything. And, and so I lost probably about an hour wow. Wow. Me messing around in the middle of the night. And, and at that point, you know, I was on the double record right on the cusp of it. I was going after it again. And I, I was like, at that point I was like, Oh man. And then I saw the guy in third, Troy Howard at the time who ended up in fourth, um, or he ended up in third. Um, and Troy was, was coming up on the other side of the Creek. And I was on a standing on a big boulder looking for flags and I yelled across to him, but he still had to come up the Creek and cross and come to where I was. So he, he was still, you know, probably six or seven minutes behind me, but I had a 68 minute lead on him at one point. So like <sighs> oh, I had burned, wow. I burned a lot. And so then from there, yeah. I was just worried about staying second. Like I was yeah. like, okay, you've lost like any chance of catching Xavier, right? Even if he faltered a little, you like, you're, you're not going to close on him. You know, that's what was, was my, you know, you start doing the math. I got 25 miles to go. Like, you know, if, if he's that X amount ahead of me, you know, I'd have to run two minutes a mile faster just to catch him. You know? So you're like, at that point, you're just like, I've got to hold on a second. So I was pushing. So wait, just so can we just pause there? Are you doing maths at like mile 80 of 100 miles? <laughs> totally. That's how I keep engaged, oh, man. Wow. I got to keep my mind going. <laughs> um, I can't do it after a marathon. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> yep. So so you'd sort of you sort of realized that first wasn't a, a thing. Wasn't at that happen. point, I was like, okay, you got to keep hold a second. So you got to yeah. keep this guy off of you. So I, I could see them all night. I could see their lights in long, long stretches because, you know, that race is above tree line. So it's just, mm. it's just tundra up above. So you're like looking back and there's, you can see the lights. If someone's, you know, a mile and a half behind you at certain places or two miles, you could see the lights. And so 
I was just every once in a while I catch glimpses of them of their lights and I'd be like, dang it, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm I've definitely put another gap between him and me since I saw him the first time, but I was still worried about him, you know, even wow. out of this, you know, coming 15 miles out, going into Maggie Gulch aid station, it's a big above tree line. It's a big basin. So you come down to the aid station and then you climb up and out of it for a long time. And so I basically was looking at like, Oh, I, when I left the aid station, I looked at my watch, what time it was. And then I was waiting to see when he got to the aid station. So I knew how exactly how far behind me he was. So I actually kept looking back, looking back. And as he came down into the aid station, when I saw them leave the aid station, I could see their headlamps. When I saw him leave the aid station, I looked at my watch and he was 11 minutes back. And so, and at that point, Jeff Rome, who ended up right behind me and closing, he was closing and I didn't realize he was closing. So I just thought it was Troy Howard. And I was like, okay, I got 11 minute lead on him. I just got to keep this lead, you know, to stay in second. So I get, down it gets light on me going into Cunningham with you know nine miles to go you know about 15k to go and um, I come in there and as I'm coming down into the aid station you have to kind of come down off this really steep section and then you drop you rock you kind of crawl through climb through this like cliff band and you drop down into the aid station onto like maybe you know two or three hundred meters on a on a gravel road into the aid station and then you go right back on the trail across a creek and I'm coming down that road and um, a photographer is running with me and he's like, Hey, you're, you're in the lead. I was like, what? And he's like, you're in the lead. I'm like, what happened to Xavier? And he's like, Oh, he's like, he got disqualified. He took eight outside of an A station. You know, obviously I didn't have time to find out any details. I just was like, from right then I was like, okay, Jeff, you're in the lead. Okay. At hard rock, you got to hold on to this. And these guys are going to find out here in a minute too, that they're right behind you. And that they got a shot at the lead. So when I got in, I was, you know, I was throwing things out of my pack and lightening up my load. And, <laughs> and my crew guy, I was like, hey, give me two gels, took new, two new flasks, you know, uh, and was out of there. And uh, um, and then you have, you know, you have a 20, I think a 2,700 cl foot climb in like 1.7 or something miles. Wow. In like 3K. So yeah. it's it's huge. It's a wall and it, it goes up to 13,000 feet. So, Jeez. so like I go in there, which, you know, breathing as hard as I can. And I knew if I could get to the top first, th that he wouldn't catch me. Cause that's seven miles from the finish. And it has probably a four mile downhill, you know? So like a, it has a almost, a, you know, 2,500 foot downhill. So I I had run that really hard in 2016 when I got the double record and I knew I had confidence in that downhill speed and like ready. My legs felt like I could handle it. And I just knew I had to get to the top first and I could see Jeff coming and wow. down because you're above tree line after about, you know, maybe four or five, 600 feet, you're above the tree line again out of that aid station. So I could see down on him because it's so steep. It's just yeah. switchbacking. And so I could see him down there and he was moving well, like hiking, power hiking with his poles. And I was like, I don't think I'm moving that well, <laughs> you know? Um, <laughs> so at this point, at this point, you were not only, I mean, you'd been in that battle for second and third, but now you're battling to hold on to the lead. Did that, did that do anything to your psychology? I mean, no, I, I mean, just really, taking it it really motivated me and come to find wow. out he was only yeah. six and a half minutes back at that aid station. Wow. So, but I ended up putting, you know, 
I think I was over a little over about 15, 16 minutes ahead of him at the finish. So I put a, a decent amount on him in that last downhill. Um, and I knew that I like, I knew that downhill really well. And I, you come across this little saddle as you top out the climb, you do a little saddle so you can't see down yet. And then you can see all the way down to tree line. You can see the trail. So I knew I needed to get into the trees before he got to the top. So I was hauling the top, you know, above tree line, <laughs> um, at breakneck speed, jumping off stuff. You know, there's a lot of drop offs and it's real technical, but I was super motivated to get into the trees and out of the, and, and he said afterwards <laughs> that he came to the edge. He was like, I'm going to catch the, he was like, oh, I'm going to catch him. I'm going to reel him in on the downhill. Cause he's comes from a track cross country background. He's got good leg speed and, and, and he's young, like, you know, late twenties. And, uh, he looks down that whole downhill and I was gone. Wow. And so <laughs> that's what I wanted. I mean, that was my goal was to get into the trees. So he, he got to the top and it would be a little deflated that I wasn't inside. Yeah. yeah. So you just break him a bit. Yeah. 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 So you, I mean, you're known as a mountain hundred mile runner. So, I mean, winning hard rock must've just been quite something. Hey, I mean, sitting aside the controversy, it must've just been a, a moment to really, yeah, it took a little bit to sink in because of all the controversy. Just that it was like a little bittersweet, you know, because mm, you want to win. Mm. I had a lot of veterans and longtime friends come up to me afterwards and be like, hey, man, don't talk like that because, you know, people and, and this I think Joe Grant probably put it in the best perspective for me. He texted me after the race and basically said, hey, you know, I'm paraphrasing here, but you know, you're always in there. You're always consistent. You're always up front. And he's like, you're there to seize an opportunity when it's presented. Sometimes guys make bad decisions, totally. right? Yeah. Sometimes they get off course. Sometimes they make new bad nutritional mistakes. Sometimes they make bad pacing mistakes. And sometimes they crew outside of aid stations. So, you know, like that's just the way it rolls. And, and yeah. you're there to, you know, seize that opportunity if you run a solid race. So, yeah, well, you put yourself in that position. I mean, you, you yeah. know, notwithstanding the fact that you had to go back and double back yourself and, you know, you, you put yourself in that position. So absolutely, you take that and, opportunity. And totally. it's almost, it's the thing, isn't it? That his actions were really, or anyone's actions, or they're none of your business. Yeah, and there's nothing I can yeah. do about his actions, no. right? It's <laughs> a, I, did, I, make, I wouldn't have crewed there because it's against the rules, you know? Mm. Even if someone would have been there to say, hey, dear, I got some stuff in my cooler. You don't do that right I, I filtered water through that section because i know it's hot and it's uphill and it takes forever i i i, I filtered out of creeks i i brought right. i brought a filter you know in my pocket to yeah, be able to drink extra papers. water through there and that was how yeah. i dealt with those logistics so yeah yeah so yeah so you are the champion i mean wow that, what, what's that like <laughs> it's cool like i, I mean i i love it's probably like my 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 favorite win just because it's hard rock. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. um, probably not my, that stands for definitely not my best, best executed race because I got the whole like wandering around in the middle of the night thinking I'm off course, um, backtracking on the course. That was like a stupid mistake that I could have like remedied by carrying a phone, but that is what it is. Yeah. Hey, just sort of in a non-running sense, I mean, you, you've had a few um, days, I think you told us over email, you're working in the yard. So what's <laughs> what's life like for you when you're not 
um, running, when you're not coaching, you know, away from, from running, what's life like for you? I am running kids around a climbing practice and (laughs) cooking, helping cook sometimes or fixing things or doing yard work. I have a sizable yard. Um, so I'm working in the yard. I'm actually building a, uh, a, right now I'm building a, <laughs> a pole hoist for taking my rooftop tent off my truck. Um, right. it, it won't fit in my garage. <laughs> and so it's been on my truck for a year through a winter and I don't want it to be on there another winter. Um, and so I want to be able to like hoist it off with, so I'm, I basically am doing it myself of building like off the side of my house, a big post that's at an angle that is going to have a pulley system that I can like yeah. pull it off the top of my roof, like pull underneath and pull it off and then drop it down onto a furniture dolly and roll wow. it into my garage. Um, so you're a bit of a backyard engineer. I totally, I hopefully it works. <laughs> I hopefully I've done enough Google searches and reading that I know what I'm doing, but I, I grew up on a farm. So, you know, I, I'll do some things myself. And some things I'll hire out, but, you know, we just renovated a downstairs basement apartment, a walkout basement apartment that we have in our, in our house and we're turning it into an Airbnb. So Mm. I've been doing that. So I've been doing flooring and painting and, you know, all those things they go putting furniture together. Actually, I actually make, I make my 16 year old do that now though, put furniture (laughs) together, especially if it's from Ikea. (laughs) It really res- I mean, I think one of the things that resonates is both Eugene and I, you know, both in our 40s, both parents, both full-time jobs. We, When we got your email about, yeah, I've been in the yard and I've been doing this and I've been doing this and I've been doing this, it was really nice to actually go, someone else does that sort of stuff. Yeah. It's I don't sit like, around be- much, man. I don't have time. I got three we don't, kids. Be- yeah, so do I. You can't. You can't sit around, can you? That's no, just- and, and I, you know, in America, ultra running is not, it's a semi-professional sport, you know, and it's not like Europe where these guys get a salary and, you know, they don't yeah. have a day job. I have to have a day job. I got three mouths to feed or five mouths to feed three kids and a wife, you know? So like, you know, I got to pay bills and I got to, you know, you know, put food on the table. And so I have to have a day job, you know? So, and I've always had a day job all the way through 18, 18 years of ultra running. So you know, I just have to balance my training. And I think that's one of the things that can, and you'll see this sometimes when, at least in the US, you know, since it's become more of a professional sport, we've seen certain guys like have day jobs and be running really well and racing. And then they go fully pro with no day job. And all of a sudden they're injured all the time or they yeah. have metabolic issues because they're overtraining. And I think right. sometimes you need that, you need that balance in your life. So plus it gives you something else to talk about. I mean, who wants to, you know, I love talking about running all day with coaching, but at some point my wife doesn't want to talk about running, man. So you yeah, need other things yeah, in your one. life so you can talk about other things. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Hey, look, Jeff, thank you so much for speaking with us. I mean, we're at that point in the in the conversation that we inflict on everyone who speaks with us. Um, we'd like to ask you, Jeff Browning, go Bronco Billy. Bronco Billy, what is your greatest run ever? I'd have to throw out a couple. Okay. 2012 San Diego 100 when I ran the course record. That was a good year. And then also 2012 was another good year. I ran Wasatch fourth fastest time. 
And I feel, I feel like, you know, anybody that's gone sub 20 hours on that course, it's a solid course. I ran 1933 that year. That was a great, great, great performance. And my hard rock in 2016, uh, coming off the double, coming off Western States, three, uh, 19 days later and running 25-42 after, you know, 19 days after getting podium at Western States, that was pretty special too. So I can't, I have too many out there, man. I've run too many hundreds <laughs> to, to throw out like one, but there's, there's a couple of good ones in there. There's a couple of really good ones. Hey, thank you so much. We'll yeah. let you get back to that uh, engineering feat in your backyard. Absolutely. Go well at Run Rabbit Run. We'll be following. Yeah, thanks great a lot. I'm looking, I'm looking forward mm-hmm. to it. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be fun. I mean, Steamboat's a great town. Great great place to go go visit too and spend a week. Oh, will you take, sorry, one last thing. Will you take the family up or are you just Yeah, that's one of the few. Up? Like they don't go to every race anymore. You know, we've been doing it so long. They're like, eh. they They understand yeah. like, yeah. okay, dad's out of commission for like three days during it right? He races for a full day, then he hasn't slept, you know, and then the prep before. And so they like to go to, if there's a cool mountain town, then they like to go. Or if it's a big spectacle like Western States. So they like to go to Western States. They like to go to Steamboat because it's a great town. It's a cool scene. It's very family friendly and easy to crew. Um, And they don't crew. I, I don't make them crew. They'll go to a few aid stations, but I have one guy that crews for me always, so I just need one person, you know. Fantastic. One wingman. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> we all need that. Yeah. Hey, thank you so much for your time. Absolutely. Thanks, guys. I appreciate the time. Thank you. All right. Cheers. There we go. I've always said uh, there's this really great PJ Harvey song. It's called Good Fortune, and she talks about things that I once thought unbelievable in my life have now taken place. And that would be probably one of them. I didn't think when we started this journey or when I started this journey running that I would be speaking to people like Jeff Brown. Yeah. Um, really he was a great, great guest. Absolutely. Good conversation. Loved him talking about tinkering out in his backyard. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Slightly worried the, the whole contraption is going to fall, fall on, top on him. And- Cause, but that's just I'm projecting my uselessness as DIY. I am anyway. also a useless DIYer. He was great. And yep. It was interesting to hear him talk about Arthur Lydiate. Yeah, that was really cool. It's it's really nice to have that sort of New Zealand or Aotearoa perspective, and um, the fact that you know it's a small country and we seem to know every we still know people who ran with Arthur Lydiate and who ran with the people who ran with Arthur Lydiate and we've run where Arthur Lydiate runs. So hmm. yeah, it was a nice connection. Absolutely. So, thank you very much. Thanks everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Yep. Uh, we'll be back next week with another interesting conversation with an interesting run-up or two. Yep. Uh, we're on social media at Dirt Church Radio. Email dirtchurchradio at gmail.com. Yep. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms, and you can also download direct from the website at Dirt Church, or not at Dirt Church Radio. Our website is www.dirtchurchradio.com. That's on the information superhighway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and if you're not where, and if we're not where you want us, let us know. Yeah, Don't forget us. to su- subscribe, share, rate us, share the love also if you you know if you like what you see i'll say share the love twice share it three times uh we're really keen to get as many people listening to the show as possible and for that we need your help we thank you for listening we do this to be part of the community and we do this to contribute to the community so without this without you we are nothing so thank you very much thanks to our guest jeff browning Jeff Browning. Jeff Browning, I know. Our our mighty sponsor, Ultra Running. Yeah, the Zero Drop Overlords. Yep. Yes. They just won't leave us alone. I know. Thanks to our editor, Kieran, and we've got some great guests lined up, so keep tuning in. Yep. 
Kakite Ana. Kakite. Thanks, Rippy. Tahiro Torufa. Rima on Fatuwaro Iwa. Bit quiet. Bit quiet. Well, yeah. I'm just. I haven't. I've caged the lion, man. Radio. Yeah. Okay, let's go.